0: Unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, copywriters, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel, and a very special guest. So I'm going to I'm going to sit back and play the fly on the wall for this episode. David, how you doing today? I'm good, Nathan. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm excited for what you've got lined up today.
1: I saw on TV there was a cyclone hurricane in Denver, a cyclone snowstorm. Did that get you?
0: It did. We got the skirts of it. Um, we got about seven inches of snow outside right now. Other parts of Denver got like up to, eight, uh, up to 12 inches, I think. It was nuts. Well, stay warm and dry.
1: All right, well, l- let, us, let us get started. We've got a very special guest, Richard Armstrong. He's a top A-list copywriter. I'm proud to say he's my friend. And he's written for all the big mailers, Agora, Boardroom, Rodale, Kiplingers, Reader's Digest, many others. The late and extremely picky William F. Buckley once allowed that Richard's writing is terrific. The legendary Gary Ben Civenga called Richard one of the best copywriters on the planet. And the great Dan Kennedy simply said of Richard, I envy his talent. And I got to agree with Dan on that one. I envy Richard's talent too, but envy has never prevented me from having a guest on this podcast. <laughs> Today, Richard is going to talk about con artistry and. I want to tell you there's a perfectly legitimate, non-indictable reason for that, which we'll get to, as well as some storytelling stuff you've probably never heard before. Of course, here's something I'm almost sure you've heard before. Copy is powerful, and you're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. All right, let's get to the new stuff. So, um, Richard, we're going to talk about copywriting today, I hope, a lot, but um, I want to start by plugging your excellent new book, The Don Con, and ask you just a little bit, for starters, about your research for that. Specifically what did you learn about con
2: artists who they are and what they do Well David I first of all I want to thank you for having me on and I also want to thank you for starting with the shameless promotion rather than having a long conversation and ending with the shameless promotion which is what most interviewers do so well, they, know, haven't, I... they haven't written books themselves so they any... <laughs> so I could you know spend a half an hour talking about the novel, but I'll give you the gist about it. Gist of it because it goes to the heart of your question. The story is about a washed-up television actor who kind of hit the peak of his career when he had a bit part on The Sopranos, okay. and now he makes his living signing autographs at fan conventions like Comic Con. Only he he tends to go to the smaller ones, and uh, one day there's a real gangster in his autograph line, and the real gangster makes him the proverbial offer he can't refuse, namely, you're going to help me rob all the celebrities at the next fan convention. Now, without giving away the whole plot, the essence of it is he he does that, he gets arrested, he gets tried, he goes to prison. And while in prison, he cooks up a a plan for revenge against the mobster, because the mobster gets away with it. And um, the revenge involves a very elaborate con game. And in order to to do that, I had to learn about how con artists work. And uh, um I had to I had to find out how con games are structured because they're they're very simple. Actually the people who know about con games divide them into two kinds. There's the short con and the long con. And the short con is very simple. You know, it's kind of like a maybe a three-card Monty game on the street. Um but the long con is a very elaborate process, and I, I had to learn how that's done. And in the, in the process of learning about it, I read a bunch of books and articles and so forth, in the process of learning about it, I said to myself, hey, this is exactly what I've been doing for the last 40 years.
1: <laughs> because
2: yeah. being a con artist and being a copywriter, very, very similar. We use the same techniques. And so it occurred to me, that, uh, you know, the more I can learn about this con artistry, maybe the better I'll get as a, as a copywriter. And probably con artists learn from copywriters, too. The, the big difference between the two is what is known in the law uh, as criminal intent. Um, because con artists do have criminal intent. They intend it to steal money, basically. They do it in a very elaborate way uh but uh their their intention is to take money and to get out of town before they're caught copywriters as you know our intention is to sell things and to sell things honestly in such a way that that the person actually feels like they've gotten at least as much value from the product as they paid for it and even more to create a relationship that will continue over time because as as you know better than anyone david um all the money in this business is on the back end, so we can, we can't. Most of it, there are some, you know, there's some shady people in our business, but most of us cannot make a living uh, with one hot one hit cons. We have to we have to make sure we have happy customers. So that's yeah. the big difference. But there are there are enormous number of similarities, and that's that's why I wrote this little uh, bonus book that I'm giving away for free just for visiting my website site called the How to Talk anybody into anything.
1: Yeah. And, and we'll get to that part later. And I know you're going to be offering people that our listeners that free special report, but I, I'll tell you, I already got a chance to review it in advance. And you, you did mention a lot of the techniques we use are the same ones that copywriters use. I mean, could you talk a little more about um, the similarities and the differences? You know, one thing I'll, I'll answer part of my question for you you know, not mind one, one thing that i got is when you were talking about that russian woman i can never pronounce her name but she she wrote the book about con artists
2: right kanakova yeah i assume i don't speak russian either but i
1: remember that she said that <laughs> she interviewed a lot of con artists and she was surprised that they had researched her better than she had researched. Yeah, isn't men. that good?
2: I mean, in the whole in the whole panoply of criminals, con artists are by far the hardest working and uh, the most intellectual. A street robbery, you know, you have a gun, you say, "Give me your money," it's all over. Right. Uh, but a con artist has to has to do a lot of work to put these things together, and even some investment as well, which makes them kind of unique among criminals. But when, when it comes to work, the key thing that they do is research. They know everything there is to know about that, that mark that they're trying to get. And uh, we have that in common with uh, with them as well. I mean, research is a key part of, of uh, the, the copywriting business. You know, you know, talk about things that um, we have in common that, you know, a lot of them are obvious, like flattery, uh, using the word you, uh, finding a common enemy and all that stuff. But one of the things that that uh, I found a little less obvious, but it's really true, is that con artists don't really like, we have have this notion that they go after stupid or gullible people, but it's not really true. They They want intelligent people who are also very emotional and impulsive. They don't want dumb people because dumb people can't, they can't grasp the opportunity that's being presented to them. You know, you can yeah. talk you're, until you're blue in the face, and a dumb person doesn't really get it, doesn't really understand. Gee, I can make a lot of money with this. Only intelligent can people can do that. And intelligent people who are also impulsive, in other words, they want to they want to do things quickly. And they have a high opinion of themselves too. They don't think they don't. They think, uh, well, I'm too smart to be con. Anybody who says I'm too smart to be con makes a perfect mark. <laughs> and and the other thing, and here is something we know in our business: it's emotion. You, you want somebody who gets so wrapped up in the emotion of the issue that they don't stop and think. They're smart enough, but they don't stop and think. You know, something about this doesn't make sense. Something doesn't fit. If they did, they'd understand they were being con. But they're so wound up with uh, either greed—I mean, greed being the most common one—but fear, uh, loneliness, um, concern about their health, all—all uh, all these kinds of emotions—they're so wrapped up with that that they don't stop and think, "Hey, this thing that being that's being offered to me, you know, it's it, it may be a
0: scam."
1: Yeah. Well, getting into research. I'm hoping you'll remember this. It was a long time ago, former life. In fact, I interviewed you for um, something called fast effective copy. And you said something that is still echoing reverberating in my mind about the difference between a list copywriters and other copywriters. And it was, it started with research, but it, it was more than research. And since those, that, interview is hardly available to most people online anymore. Could you talk about that again?
2: Well, sure. I mean, I, I've seen this in my own career. I, my first job in this business was way back in 1976, which I think is 40 plus years ago. And I work for an agency. And like every uh, copywriter, I mean, every assignment begins with a big stack of information that you get from your client. your client. I mean, stack of research material. And when I first got the job, my methodology was that I would start reading it until I got my first good idea, which usually happened within the first five or 10 minutes. And then I would run to the typewriter and try to do the whole promotion based on my first good idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the results I got from that were mixed, uh, as in When I say mixed, they were good and rotten, okay? So I I gradually realized that the good idea may be at the bottom of the stack rather than the top of the stack. And so I would spend more time with the the research, and my results improved. And then I realized over time that occasionally you get through the entire stack and you still haven't found a good idea. And that's when you have to do things like – call up the client and interview them. Ask, ask to interview other members of the, or other uh, employees of the company. Maybe you visit the manufacturing plant like uh, Claude Hopkins famously did. Yeah. Um, Mike Palmer and Jed Canty are, are uh, uh, of Agora are, are famous for doing literal library research. Well, they'll read, you know, half a dozen or or 20 books on a subject, uh, or, uh, you know, something that's related to the subject, and they find their good idea in that. And I've, you know, I've known, I think I've known just about all of the major freelance copywriters, personally, over the last 40 years or so. Uh, You know, either they're friends, or I just, you know, I've talked with them, I've met them, what have you. Um, I don't know some of the people that they keep in the basement over in Baltimore and Agora. Who are some of the, They are some of the best copywriters in the world. But if you're a freelancer, we've probably met at some point. And uh, I've just been struck over and over and over again how the best ones are the ones who just research and research and research. I mean, you know, you look at guys like Paris and David Deutsch, Clayton. Now, they may not be doing this research themselves in the sense that they have, they might have a, an assistant who's gathering it for them. They're not going to the library every day, um, and maybe not even on Google. But somehow they're getting that, that, that uh, initial um, uh, scut work done, and then they're getting just an enormous pile of information, and they're taking their time going through it. Very, very carefully. And uh, that, I, I think, to me, that's the biggest difference between the so-called A-list copywriter and, and somebody who's further down on the list.
1: Yeah, and the, the uh, other thing was that top-of-the-pile, bottom-of-the-pile um, uh, distinction that you made about ideas because, um, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, to this day, especially since they hadn't heard you say this yet, once they come up with a, a big idea, it's sort of like they discovered the wheel, you know, and like <laughs> nothing can beat that. And so they stop. And of course the idea is not to stop, but to keep going to really compete with yourself. See, can I come up with a better idea? In other words,
2: not, you know, kill yes, your so darlings. not not. It's kind of like headlines, you know? I mean, I have a tendency to write a headline and say, hey, that's pretty good, and then not think about it again. But uh, a guy like Gary Bensabenga we'll write uh, 500 of them and uh, then choose the one that he thinks best out of those. And, you know, that's why these guys are, you know, at the best of the best. I mean, you, you, you call me uh, an A-list copywriter. I actually have a tendency to think that I'm sort of like at the top of the B list. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm like, you know, Salieri in, in, uh, in Amadeus. I'm, I'm good enough to realize that these guys are better. And, well, and you can still be that,
1: among the best and not be the very best. Can't? You? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, I think some, at a certain point, you you you're good enough to to really appreciate uh, the guys who are at the at the top and what's different between them and you. And uh, and it's really. That, more than anything else, is just an absolute refusal to to settle for good enough, whether it's research or, or headlines or proof. Uh, that's another thing that the, the, the top A-listers are just fabulous at, is coming up with these layers and layers and layers of proof elements. And, uh, you know, I have to say that in many of my projects, I, you know, I, I do enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, not a... Not enough to be making a million dollars a year like those guys are doing.
1: But what you're describing in those guys—don't the psychologists have a technical term for that?
2: Well, yes, they're not normal. They're not normal people. I, I yeah, I have to remind—you know—people talk to me about copywriting. I have to say, you know, you look at guys like David Paris, and Clayton. They're—they're um, they're normal in the sense that they're normal human beings, but their their attitude towards work is not the same as you know most of us you know i I like to put in a reasonable number of hours a day and you take bob Bly for example i mean he's getting up at six and working until 11 i mean a.m to p.m
1: yeah i know
2: and uh you know i'm just not built that way and some of these guys are and and uh um plus you know you talk about natural talent and so on and so forth but uh yeah hard there's just there's no there's no uh a substitute for hard work there never is
1: all right, so i want to uh change the subject a little bit uh Richard as a fellow advertising guy, surely you must remember the old ad for certs you know with the cute teenagers and <clears throat> they're arguing about whether certs is a breath mint or a candy mint. <laughs> yes. Then the announcer comes in. They never says, did
2: resolve that question, though, David. I don't well, think they didn't, but so the
1: announcer said, it's a breath mint and a candy mint.
2: It's two mints in one is what it is.
1: So, Richard, in your own way, you've got a similarly rare distinction. You're a copywriter and a novelist. Um, could you tell us, what do novelists know about storytelling that copywriters don't?
2: Well, you know, there are... There are some copywriters who are quite good at storytelling, so I don't want to I don't want to sell them short. Um, one, I think the best storytelling copywriter in the world is a name that you, a guy that you probably don't know his name because he keeps a somewhat lower profile. His name is Josh Mannheimer. You remember that name? I've, I think I've heard about it from you, but I, I don't He's, know him. He used to be uh, hooked up with an artist uh, uh, named David Wise, and they had a little agency called Mannheimer and Wise, and then. David Wise, uh, died, uh, very prematurely. Uh, but Josh Manard is like the greatest storytelling copywriter alive today. And if, if the listeners would like to check him out, uh, go to, uh, www.directmailcopy.com. Um, by, by the way, that's a great URL. He must've gotten that very early on. Yeah, <laughs> so well. Directmailcopy.com. Um, but you'll just see, Example after example of just fabulous storytelling leads, but you know most copywriters I think could use some improvement in this area. And and the thing that most novelists know about telling stories that I think most copywriters don't is that you've got to have three main ingredients. There's it's sort of like the molecular uh, compound that we know is sugar. Okay, you got to have carbon. You've got to have hydrogen and you've got to have oxygen. Yep. And when you're telling a story, you've got to have character, you've got to have conflict, and you've got to have change. you got to start with a character, somebody who has certain characteristics or personality traits. And those traits, those characteristics usually involve some kind of a flaw or a failing or a yearning of some kind, some, something that that person needs to be complete. Uh, And as a result of that yearning, uh, they get into some kind of a a conflict. And as a result of the conflict, some kind of a change occurs. Um, The best example of this is something that you talk about certs being familiar is is uh, the Charles Atlas ads that okay. used to be in the inside back cover of every comic book in the world and they, they may still be there I don't know. I haven't looked at a comic book in about 40 years so but when I, when you and I were growing up, that was in every single comic book and it's just a perfect example of character conflict and change because it starts out by establishing the character of the protagonist. He's, you know he's a 97 pound weakling. He's, he's, he's shy. He's timid. Even his own girlfriend makes fun of him and says that he's not a real man. And, and because of this personality that invites a conflict. In other words, a bully comes along and deliberately kicks sand in its face. So the two of them have a conflict. And of course our, you know, our protagonist is embarrassed by that conflict, uh, because he, you know, he can't do anything about it. So that causes him to change, character conflict, change, and the change is that guess what he buys the Charles Atlas bodybuilding. Um, yeah, he builds up his his body, and uh, he comes back. Now he's you know strong. He looks like uh, he looks like uh, Muhammad Ali all of a sudden, and he beats up the bully. All this happens. Now, granted, there are pictures there because it's in the comic book style, and and in fact given a little bit of a sidebar here, uh, people think that so-called native advertising is uh, new. (laughs) (laughs) Not new. (laughs) It's an ad that's in the form of a comic, and it's in a comic book. In other words, native advertising's been around for about 80 years or so. Um, But at any rate, uh, he he, he beats up the bully. So you've seen those three things. And and I think in copywriting, um, sometimes copywriters who are not naturally talented at storytelling will, will forget that if you don't have those three things you don't have a story it's like if you don't have carbon hydrogen and oxygen you don't have sugar
1: that's brilliant and you're absolutely right i actually have given talks about that comic strip it's called the insult that made a man out of mac the 97 pound yeah. weakling is named mac <laughs> You can find it online if if you look for it. It's brilliant. Really, he does it in, what, six or eight panels, and it, it's such a perfect example. I've never heard the – I love the way you describe that. That's really good. I'm better than anything I've ever heard. Of. Really you think uh, uh,
2: 124 words. I mean, I can't even say hello in 124. <laughs> and it tells the whole story. Now, there is a coupon there. I think there's a little bit of body copy. But basically, the whole thing is conveyed in 124 words. It's just
1: amazing. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands. Including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in LA's famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself, or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 a head seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now back to the show.
0: The comic book industry as a whole seems to have forgotten this lesson. A lot of the uh, characters in comic books now, especially with the push towards diversity, they're afraid to give their characters flaws. They're afraid to give their characters comic or conflicts. They don't want to come off as saying, Oh, a woman couldn't deal with this problem or uh, a minority wouldn't be able to... Uh, would, have, would have struggles with this problem. So a lot of the comic books now have actually lost the conflict and lost the character flaws, and uh, the comic book industry is plummeting in sales because of Oh, it. that's a that's
2: a terrible thing to hear. I mean, I'm I'm sure you're right because we're seeing it so much in in other forms of entertainment. But it's ironic that this would be happening to comics at the very time when you know the the movie business has sort of discovered comics. And mm-hmm. it's making these blockbuster movies. But I think they're, you know, they're working with comics uh, and comic characters that were invented uh, 34 years ago, like Spider-Man and, and, and
0: the uh, Wonder Woman, the others. Back when the writers understood those necessarily Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was Stan Lee.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that in one very good way, Richard is extremely old fashioned because every character in the Don Con is extremely flawed. And very interesting as a result.
2: <laughs> yes, especially the main character. I think he's kind oh of. In, he he <laughs> cheats on his wife. He, he's, uh, he's you know, so getting, he gets involved in a big robbery. Uh, he's, he's not a man of great uh, moral uh, integrity. But uh, I he, the key he, thing is, though, he's likable. I think think he's very
1: likable. And (laughs) he's very inept in the beginning and he's unbelievably smooth until the very end where he turns into a a bumbler. It's just wonderful. (laughs) I I just love that story. (laughs) I really do. So let's let's get down into your storytelling and your copywriting. You know, one of my favorite Richard Armstrong written stories is a lift note you did for Kiplinger's personal finance about your aunt Jane. And of course, the it's just a you know a few hundred words. Um, it's great storytelling in itself. Let me read it out loud, and maybe you can tell us about it. Okay.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yes, I, lo- I love having this read out loud. I could do dramatic readings. Of it.
1: <laughs> well, it's even I'll,
2: better when you read it.
1: I'll do my best, um, dear friend. My aunt Jane is rich as sin, and nobody in my family can figure out why. She worked as a librarian her whole life. Her husband who passed away a few years ago, was a tool and die maker. They never earned much money in their lives, but boy, were they ever smart with what they had. There was a little vacation home they picked up for a song and wound up selling for $250,000. Some well-chosen stocks that grew in value over the year, mutual funds, municipal bonds, treasury bills, even a vintage Volkswagen Beetle that's worth more now than the day they bought it. Nowadays, my Aunt Jane, who we always thought was just a little crazy, is a bona fide millionaire. One day I asked her for the secret of her success. I have three rules, she said. One, never let your money sit idle. Two, never pay more than you have to for anything. Three, never pass up anything that's free. Well, my friend, unless you return the enclosed card today, you're going to break at least one and probably all three of my aunt's rules. Because if you return the enclosed card, you'll get a free issue of Kiplinger's personal finance, rule number three. If you decide to subscribe, you'll get the next 11 issues at a very low price plus three free bonus gifts, rule number two. And instead of spending the rest of your life working for money, you'll put your money to work for you, rule number one. I know my aunt Jane wouldn't pass up a free sample issue of Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine, but of course, she already subscribes. Best regards, Richard Armstrong. Hey. <laughs> so,
2: so tell us about that. Well, it's um, you know, it's kind of funny that you would choose it as an example of storytelling, and I guess it is. But it, it I, I think maybe. Uh, some of your listeners might have noticed that it didn't follow the rules that I just gave you. And that's because I'm not sure I would look at this as a story. It's more like a, um, I would say kind of a dramatized testimonial, but so it doesn't have, there's not a lot of conflict in there. Uh, Maybe some change, but what it has to the nth degree is character. You have a real sense of what uh, her name was, her actual name was Anna Lane, by the way. I didn't, I didn't want to identify her too closely while she was still alive. And uh, uh, by the way, she she died, and she accumulated a lot of money, and some of it was left to me, which is why I can spend the afternoon talking to you, David. Instead, well, thank of you, Elaine. Thank you in heaven, <laughs> wherever you are now. <laughs> but you get a real you get a real sense of what Elaine was like and my uncle, um, because you know they had ordinary jobs. She was a librarian at Yale University. And he worked for a gun manufacturer, uh, both very typical sort of Connecticut jobs, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I doubt if not only did they not make six figures, I doubt if even putting together their incomes, if they ever got to six figures. And yet here she is at age when she died at age 96 or so. um, She had a net worth of uh, five million dollars. So. And all that was just by being thrifty, uh, by being intelligent, by uh, saving her money, by investing it well. And these are the things that the very things that the product is, uh, Kiplinger's personal finance magazine is designed to help you do. So this had the advantage of being a a real strong sense of character um, and also the great advantage of being a true story. Um, you'll notice that I, I, um, told it in the first person voice and not only that, but I signed it with my own name, Richard Armstrong, which is something I like to do whenever the situation comes up where I can not only use a first person voice, but also sign my own name. I love to do that. It, it just adds a certain authenticity, uh, to what you're writing. You're not always in a situation where that's possible, but this is one where it was, and it was just enormously successful. And the same, it was a lift letter. It wasn't the main letter of the package. It was a lift letter in that was put into a big, big package. But not only did it become the control, I think it, I think it beat an Eric Betuel, uh previous control. And then it just lasted for years. And here was past. one of
1: Brian Kurtz's four heads on Mount Fuji. Yes, Cooper's, he's right?
2: one of the uh, titans. Yeah, and he's a uh, uh, he's a great guy and a great copywriter. And uh, I was very pleased, <laughs> very pleased to beat it. Um, but uh, it just lasted for years and years and years. And then when it finally fatigued, and they went with something else, they they discovered after a while that if they took the new package, the one that beat it, and they dropped my lift letter in the new package, <laughs> it would it increased response enormously. So the lift letter had a big life after after the package had expired, you know? And I think, it, I, I think when you add it all together, they were using it in one form or another for something like 15 years, which is, you know, in in some cases, like, you know, there's this story about the Wall Street Journal letter that uh, is so famous. I happen to like the copy a lot, but some people say, look, you know, well, Wall Street Journal, they weren't very sophisticated direct marketers and they didn't do a lot of testing. But and so some people say, you know, maybe that letter's not as great as some people think it is. Uh, on the other hand, Kiplinger's, they they those guys would test. I mean, they would test whether the stamp on an envelope is vertical or slightly askew. They tested everything. And so this this just lived up to a barrage of testing over the course of 15 years. And I, I, I you know, humbly think that it's probably the best little piece of writing I ever did.
1: Well, I'd like to um, respectfully challenge your idea that it doesn't have all the elements of a story. I would say it's more like a European story
2: than (laughs) an American story. because It's it's more like a literary novel than a commercial novel.
1: Well, the flaw is, you know, very subtle. I mean, she's only a librarian. She's not, you know, a Rothschild um, or the Queen of England. And yet she reaches that level and I, so i think there's a change too um but it, it's it's more implicit and subtle more like you're right you're like, right igmar bergman or something perhaps i don't well, know when you
2: I, I i imagine you pulled this out of the sample book that i offer on the internet mm-hmm. and uh i uh, i i just thought uh, well you know there are other things in there that are better examples of storytelling but uh, but, uh, you know, I don't mind that you pull this because, like I said, I'm extraordinarily proud of this. And I'm I'm always happy to uh, to <laughs> to hear it being read by somebody with a voice as good as yours, David.
1: So how did I do? Does sound okay?
2: I thought you did beautifully. I think you should join the Screen Actors <laughs> Guild.
1: I don't think they'd have me, but if I can, <laughs> if I can get in, I will, because everybody <laughs> wants to be a movie star, including me. Okay, so... You know, I, I was wondering if you have any other secrets. I mean, you've shared a boatload a ton, and yours really is the voice of experience. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. But any other, besides all the inhuman research and the uh, enviable and really annoying talent that you have, is there anything else that you've used to create? You've written some letters that have failed like all of us, but you've written some letters that have killed and done really well.
2: Any other secrets you can share well, to stay on the subject of storytelling? Uh, you know, I would I would emphasize that that first person uh, voice, especially if you're a business owner. I know you have a lot of uh, people who are not professional copywriters on your uh, podcast or listening. Pos- your yes. podcast. Yeah, yeah, business owners, I mm-hmm. think especially if you're a business owner to tell your own story and do it in the first person voice. It's a great opportunity there, because it, we uh, hired gun copywriters can't always do that so and start with a story as we discussed the three things that a story should contain uh, some other points about storytelling that I think are worth mentioning one is, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle you know twenty six hundred years ago, start in the middle of this story start at at the most dramatic point, especially in direct mail, because you really don't have the opportunity that you do with a novel where you can maybe tell 50 or 100 pages worth of, not backstory necessarily, but kind of leading up to the main event, Um, you've got to start with the most dramatic point in in direct mail. Uh, And uh, if you look at uh, the Josh Mannheimer thing I told you about, uh, he's got a perfect example of doing that. The other is good advice that novelists hear a lot, and we copywriters, don't get this advice uh, as much as we should and that is show rather than tell uh you know instead of saying john got really mad at mary uh say something along the lines of john turned his back on mary tried to light a cigarette but his his hands were shaking too much he couldn't light it so he threw the cigarette on the sidewalk and he turned to mary and he said listen you bitch." (laughs) <laughs> or what? Or what We just lost all our SJW <laughs> in in like one minute. I can't believe you said that, but I'm glad you did. So you know, I think ideally, when you're writing copy, the 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 reader should be perceiving it not as the written word, but they should be, a little movie should be going on in their head. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So write your copy, especially nowadays when you're talking about video sales letters and whatnot. Be more of a screenwriter than a copywriter. Write write in such a way. I think you know. Paris was mentioning this on 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 the uh, seminar that he did a couple of weeks ago. I know yeah. you were on that too. Yeah, um, that. He said, uh, you know, if you were watching a movie, how would you write this? Um, and so that that really is what is meant by that 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 classic advice of show rather than tell. And then the other piece of advice that I would give about storytelling and copywriting and in, in, in writing fiction, this comes from Elmore Leonard who wrote a very fine little book about uh, writing and writing advice. And he said, don't write the stuff that readers tend to skip. In other words, writers love to write long descriptions of the, of the weather and the landscape and what the character was wearing and what the character looks like. Readers hate that stuff. They just skip right over it. But the one thing that they don't skip, never skip, is dialogue. So dialogue is very important. You want to get that into your story, whether it's novel, whether you're writing a novel or a direct mail piece. And if you look at the the storytelling stuff in 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 my sample book or in the in some of the free books that I'm giving away today you'll you'll see that it, it's mostly dialogue
1: yeah i mean aunt jane the the whole key of the aunt jane letter is her three rules those are coming right out of her mouth right
2: i hadn't thought of that you know uh, david you're you're uh you're, you're, you're gradually convincing me that that is a good example of storytelling.
1: (laughs) Furthermore, as, as your Montgomery County high school grammar teacher, I'm going to say that you forgot to put quotation marks around a quote. How could you do that? Okay. So really good. Um, Let's talk about your free bonus offer. You're offering a special report, how to talk anyone into anything. And let's tell people how they can get this
2: book. Sure. Sure. Well, like I said, the, the genesis of this book was that in order to write the novel, I had to learn a lot about con artistry. And then I discovered, well, heck, this has a lot to do with copywriting, too. So I, I actually found, I think it was 44, either 44 or 45 different tips uh, that both copywriters and con artists have in common. Not tips, but techniques. And so I wrote those in a free booklet that's called How to Talk Anybody into Anything. And the subtitle is Persuasion Secrets of the World's Greatest uh, Con Artists. And all you have to do to get it is to go on to my uh, landing page for the novel, which is www.thedoncon.com. Uh, but you don't have to buy the novel. You just go on the page and, and download the uh, free book. Now, of course, I think once you get there, you're going to say, my God, this novel looks fantastic. I think I'll buy it too. But you don't have to. It's a free download, no obligation, no commitment, and so on and so forth.
1: Well, I want to say that, you know, I do recommend a lot of books on this podcast. But I realize most of the books I recommend are pretty specialized, and they're just for people who are interested in copywriting. Not your book. I think a lot of people, anyone who watches TV and people who hate TV, would really like this book. That covers just about everyone. And so now, if... If I think you should, your family members should read it too. Um, if you all live under the same roof, that's fine. But if you have family members, extended family, they should buy it. Business <laughs> associates. The only person I would not suggest you get it for is a fellow copywriter because they might pick up a trick and they might beat you in the next control. But <laughs> even that, I, everyone should get this book. It's it really, really, in fact, didn't you tell me I hold the world record for reading it in one sitting?
2: For reading the novel, yes, you did. Yeah, I, um, you were, uh, you said, okay. Well, I, I, I sent you an advanced reader copy uh, months ago, and for the longest time, you didn't respond at all, and I thought, oh my god, David hates it. David hates it. I was just, you know, so I was so upset. And then it occurred to me that you hadn't started. Uh, so you, uh, you sent me an email that said, uh, uh, "I'm starting it now." And then I think about two and a half hours later, you said, I finished it. And it was great. I thought, well, hell, even I can't read it that fast. And I'm pretty, I've had to read it about 800 times, you know, in order to publish something.
1: And you're and, probably reading uh, it a little more carefully than I am. But, you know, yeah, yeah, I well, love it. You
2: can credit yeah. Evelyn Wood with, for... Uh, <laughs> That's
1: true, too. Yes.
2: And uh, you notice that when you mentioned, we mentioned that on Facebook and David Deutsch said that uh, uh, somebody... Uh, Somebody took a Evelyn Wood speed reading course, and they read War and Peace. And they asked him, uh, "Well, what was it about?" And and he said, "It was about Russia." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, see, I, I could talk about I I can talk about a lot of details of this book, but I did I read it in longer than fifteen minutes. <laughs>
2: it, it, it was really fun. Two hours and thirty minutes. But uh, you know, I the, the thing I like to hear most about it, and I do. When people compliment it, not that many people have read it yet because it doesn't really go on sale for, um, a, um, well, will be by the time this is broadcast. Yeah, it's going on sale early April, right? April 1st, yeah. yeah. But the people who have read it, the, the, most, most everyone has had good things to say about it. But the thing that I love most is when they say, I, can't, I couldn't put it down. I just, I had to keep reading. So, because that's, that's what you really want to hear is a novel. I'd rather hear that than, you know, it was a heartbreaking work of genius.
1: And and the characters really ring true. Um yeah, uh, it was wonderful. Um
2: I, And there's a little direct mail copy in there too, you know. We won't yeah. give that away right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, there's somebody there's what? somebody very famous in our business who kind of makes a little appearance.
1: One of his Cubies, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I was very thrilled about that part. That was good. Um well, Richard, thank you. Um again, the, the website is um how to talk anyone into No, that's
2: the name of the uh, free giveaway, but the website is thedoncon.com. So just Don, the title of the book dot com.
1: The doncon.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was a delightful thing and I've been doing this podcast for two years. I'm glad you finally decided to come on.
2: I know. I was afraid I was going to be the last copywriter in America interviewed on uh, on your podcast.
1: Not at and all. And
2: Kevin Rogers, I don't even know what he's thinking. He's done 500 copywriters and gotten to me yet.
1: Well, we'll have to have a little talk with Kevin. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, um, thanks again. And um, good luck with the book. I'm sure it's going to... So really well. Was, Thank you, David. Great.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for coming.
0: Thank you both. Awesome conversation. Definitely check out thedoncon.com. Get your free copy of the uh, what What was the name of the copy of the book that people can get that get
2: there? How to talk anybody into anything.
0: All right, get your copy of How to Talk Anybody into Anything. And until next time, make sure you're getting your copywriters fix over at copywriterspodcast.com.
1: Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on Garfinkelmedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to GarfinkelMedia.com and fill out the form. That's GarfinkelMedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriter's Podcast. This is the
2: Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.